Hey, this is the Last Coffee House. Modern Man in Search of a Soul. This is the Jordan Peterson reading list. It's a series of essays by Carl Jung. It was published in 1933. It covers a lot of topics. There's a lot of stuff going on here. None of which do I have any expertise to actually discuss, so be aware of that particular factor when we go through here. He begins talking about dream analysis, an interesting topic. He talks about them in the context of neuroses and trying to understand and diagnose neuroses and hopefully treat them to some degree. He asks the questions, why analyze dreams at all? And then likens it, he uses an analogy. He talks about the facade of a house. A dream is like a facade of a house. And once you get inside the house, then you can see all the furniture and the substance of what's going on in there. And that's what's going on with a dream. It covers up the internals. He talks about how free association is not helpful when trying to interpret a dream, but you have to look at the information that would be accessible to a person and really tamp it down in that context to try to figure out what the dream means or how it might be helpful in dealing with neuroses. And he brings up some archetypes in dreams, of course. Young loves the archetypes. I remember a horse and it meant something, but I'm wondering definitely what significance any of that archetype talk actually has in this context. I know Jordan Peterson just loves all the archetype stuff when it comes to psychology, but particular things having particular meanings in dreams, it just smacks of astrology. And I don't know the extent this has been studied since the 30s and where it's at now. It doesn't seem all that particularly rigorous to me. Then he goes into problems of modern psychotherapy. It brings up Adler versus Freud. And he breaks it down as Freud being all about the sex and Adler being about power. And I'm sure, I mean, Freud, that's probably a good description. But for Adler, I'm not, I haven't read much Adler. I'm guessing that's probably an oversimplification of what Adler had to say about this whole stuff. So maybe we'll run into an Adler book as we go along the reading list. He emphasizes this one of the best things about Young reading through this book. He emphasizes the lack of certainty in psychotherapy. Of course, this was the 30s. It was easy to be have some humility related to this burgeoning brand new academic interest. But he expresses throughout, there are only a couple of topics where he doesn't. Most of the topics that he discusses, he discusses with humility and is very clear about it. And this is something that you generally see in scientists that you don't see in everybody else, that they express a whole bunch of caveats and humility when it comes to any of these extremely complex topics. So it's really refreshing to see that, especially if someone's with this kind of stature in this area. He says that there's no recipe for living that suits all cases, so that makes psychotherapy difficult. He says the cases that he takes are the ones where the standard treatments don't have any results, and talks about how what in one person can be a passing mood can become a condition in others. He talks about dreams that they offer clues to these sorts of things, and he doesn't need to prove that the dream interpretation is correct. It just needs to help the patient, which is an interesting kind of way of looking at it. <laughs> so it, it might not necessarily be a true interpretation, but you have the interpreter, the person, the patient, as the interpreter and how they interpret it can impact their treatment. So if their treatment is positively impacted even by a wrong interpretation, then that's a good thing. He brings up a lot of mythology stuff and he talks about the collective unconscious. And this is this and the archetypes later, not necessarily the archetypes in the dreams, but just archetypes in general and the collective unconscious are the things where he doesn't express a whole lot of humility. I, I mean, those are the things that he's known for, of course. So when he discusses those, like I said, it seemed like he didn't have much humility and was pretty certain or expressed certainty on those topics. He brings up complexes and talks about how they're subconscious conflicts and deal with a person's weaknesses. He uses, this is interesting, It's a he calls it a compass for psychotherapy and discovery in psychotherapy. He talks about poles on the compass of like introvert versus 
versus extrovert and thinking versus feeling. I think those are the ones that, that he was talking about as the compass. I know there was a compass in there, but he talks about those those categories as methods for categorizing, you know, even, even though they're not, of course, categories would be methods for categorizing. That makes sense. Even though he, again, expresses humility in the fact that it's not something you're going to be able to just plug every single person into, but they're good ways to give you direction in trying to understand people. He brings up the stages of life, and this second part, this part of the book, he kind of goes into trying to be more directly helpful in understanding uh, how people develop and how they can better their lives and increase their well-being. And interestingly, in the 30s, he was bringing up <laughs> the development of effeminate men and masculine women, and brought up this interesting idea about how we don't have schools for 40-year-olds, so we don't have schools that teach people how to be old, and we don't have schools that teach people how to be middle-aged. He also has there's a lot of religious interest in the way religion plays a role in this whole psychology thing and he talks about how there's no evidence for what happens after death of course there's tons of evidence but <laughs> it's a different context of making an argument it's that solipsistic context of looking at death and how death works he brings up archaic man and this part any modern reader will say ah oh, this is so patronizing but he talks about how primitive men will look at things that are happening as omens and oh and Initially, he brings up how Freud looks at psychology as a reflection of himself, and Adler can look at the exact same evidence and come to completely different conclusions. And uh, I think he says he differs from Freud in that Freud sees sex as the most important or singular factor in determining what, why people do whatever they do, whereas Jung and Adler see a whole bunch of different factors, and sex is just one of the contributory factors. But, so, he went to Africa and did a bunch of work there, wherein there would be these things that would happen and the locals would see them as omens whereas he and his crew would just see them as things that are statistically probable of happening so one time his camp was attacked by hyenas which is awesome and hilarious so young and the crew would see it as a possible event given the circumstances but the locals would see it as some kind of an omen and one of them they talked to a, a wise man in the area i did air quotes if you didn't see it who talked about how once the british got there that people no longer had dreams and that the british stole the dreams the british were having all the dreams now and there was one crocodile who attacked a person and they said that the police had enlisted the crocodile <laughs> to enforce the laws or something like that so interesting take he brings up oh he goes into psychology and literature and how that works so he wonders if wagner liking to wear women's clothes impacted his music and has this dichotomy psych psychological i don't know if it's a dichotomy but psychological versus visionary art and i didn't really catch what the distinction was on these things but he talks about interpreting a work of art psychologically and the distinction between interpreting the psychologically the psychology of a work of art and the psychology of an artist how those two things are different and brings up Goethe and being in a I can't remember the word he used something like manic state of mind when he wrote the second part of Faust so the first part he was just fine <laughs> but when he read the wrote the second part he likely had some kind of mania or something else while he was writing it and goes right into the collective unconscious and he just waxed all sorta about the collective unconscious related to art called a mess a message to generations of men he brought up this collective man idea and used it as a kind of means of explanation of art but he went on for a while about how oh, just tapping into the collective unconscious to make this art and stuff and he doesn't go directly into the evidence for the collective unconscious or the archetypes or anything like that he doesn't expound upon those a whole lot in these lectures i would love to read books specifically just about the 
those things so we could really tamp it down because there's an interesting idea behind it the collective unconscious anyway in that we're biological creatures with a similar biological pedigree so you'd wonder what kinds of echoes we have biologically that we all share and it's something that we could have access to all individually but otherwise the whole idea of the collective unconscious seems pretty mystical and the archetypes you wonder what kind of explanatory power those archetypes have although things like hero story or the you know the odysseus the leaving home and learning and growing and then coming back home those those kinds of things that repeat in all of our all of our art the oedipal fantasy those kinds of things i mean i'm sure you could make some kind of a case for collective unconscious related to those again it's probably grounded tethered to biology and goes on from there and he brings up so the importance of a spiritual life did i just jump i think i just jumped so this chapter was about the basic postulates of analytic psychology and he opens it by talking about how they had to develop a psychology without a soul and this was tough you know this was the 30s they're trying to figure this stuff out and talks about how of course everybody should know by now that the words for the soul in various languages specifically related to moving air so breathing and how obviously when somebody dies they stop breathing so it would it would be a pretty simple inference to say that well it has to have something to do with that moving air when the air is moving in and out of you then that suggests that you're alive so there's some extra ball of something in there whether it's just the air or something else that is the soul so they're trying to as psychotherapists as psychologists as people trying to figure this whole thing out they're trying to develop a psychology while leaving aside that weird idea that religious idea of a soul so he brings up the collective unconscious again an ocean of images and figures in the cu and now he talks about the importance of spiritual life the sources of meaning that people need and then uh, one of my favorite sentiments i i just love it when people who are so brilliant are willing to have this kind of humility where he talks about how the science of mind is no more developed today than physical sciences in the 13th century so it's really pre-copernican when it comes to the science of mind mind and really understanding how we think and why we think what we think and all that and then he goes into the spiritual problem of modern man a lot of talk on about religion and i really kind of like his posture related to religion because he doesn't just disdainfully reject it outright but he's still willing to say well obviously i'm challenging it and i think it's wrong <laughs> and there are a whole bunch of weird things about it that seem to obviously be incorrect but there are, are very many important things when it comes to psychological health related to it so he's, he's talking about religions and the, all the different religions and that people started trying them on like there were Sunday attire. You just put on a different robe of a religion for any given week to figure out if that one fit. He brings up theosophy, which is any of a number of philosophies maintaining that a knowledge of God may be achieved through spiritual ecstasy, direct intuition, or special individual relations, especially the movement founded in 1875. I just read the definition, so that wasn't me elucidating the concept of theosophy. But it's about a more personal relationship and it, obviously a precursor likely to all the spiritual but not religious stuff <laughs> that you started to hear. At least I started to hear in like the late 90s and early 2000s. He brought up the Gnostic systems and Anthroposophy. Anthroposophy is a formal educational, therapeutic, and creative system established by Rudolf Steiner, seeking to use mainly natural means to optimize physical and mental health and well-being. So a lot of roots to when it comes to today, a lot of roots in those philosophies that were developing in the late 19th century. And as far as Jung can tell, the decline of religious life increases neuroses. It leads to meaninglessness as an issue. He described neurosis as the state of being at war with 
oneself. Anyway, that's the, that's the end of the last lecture for the most part. Now, when it comes to my analysis of this, I didn't write my notes of analysis, so I'll just do it on the fly here. But I definitely think people should read <laughs> this, this book. It's got a lot of very interesting topics and ideas and important things that it's trying to get across. And it's one of the fathers of a still nascent inquiry into psychology and figuring out why we do what we do, which of course, for purposes, for our purposes, should be the most interesting <laughs> and the most important road of inquiry that we can undertake because our behavior, what we do or don't do, is the source of our ailments. So if we could get that figured out, then we can alleviate most of those ailments. There are still, I mean, this was in, like I said, the 30s, so I don't know how much rigorous scientific backing all of these ideas had, but it has some of the most interesting ideas that are out there. I mean, the ideas about collective unconscious, the archetypes, using dream analysis to figure out neuroses, complexes, this idea of you being at war with yourself and when you don't have meaning or other external forces that are giving you some kind of guidance and how that impacts our primate psychology. A lot of interesting stuff going on here. And like I said, brilliant person willing to have humility. There are a lot of things I can't wait. I hope later on the Jordan Peterson reading list we run into more rigorous descriptions and works bringing evidence to bear on ideas like the collective unconscious and the archetypes and how archetypes work because there, there's so much just space in those to run into unfalsifiable assertions about stuff. So I hope there's a lot to it that actually has a, a lot of explanatory power. But I really, I'm looking forward to reading more Young. I'm looking forward to reading more Freud. Maybe we can mix some William James in there and, and get some Adler down. I don't know who the pillars of psychology or psychotherapy are nowadays, but hopefully it's come a long way, baby. And we have a lot to, a lot to learn a lot of good stuff but we'll see i mean the jordan peterson reading list is proving extremely interesting i'm enjoying a lot we did road to wigan pier we did the painted bird which is weirdly mind-blowing and now we've got modern man in search of his soul it's just all all been good stuff but anyway so this this is the last coffee house hope all is well i'll see you on the next one okay bye <laughs>